Well, this is a curious time this summer, uh, and during the summer we we like to do something a little bit different with our teaching. And so this summer we've been looking at some of the sayings that have been ascribed to Jesus that, in fact, Jesus never said. A lot of stuff out there that floats around in popular culture that can lead to misunderstandings about who Jesus is and about the character of God. And then we shifted gears last week and began to look at some of the things that Jesus really did say that leave us with a little bit of disbelief. I mean, I can't believe that he really said that. Jesus was a great teacher. I mean, no argument about that. But a lot of the things that he said are just hard. In fact, there are places in the Bible repeatedly where those who were with him, particularly his disciples, responded to Jesus saying, Master, this is a hard saying. It's a hard thing that you're teaching. And so this month we're, we're looking at a few of those. And if you were here with us last week, we said that that portion of the Bible, it feels an awful lot more like, like hard candy than it does like soft chocolate. You know, chocolate you just pop in your mouth and you savor it, dissolves quickly and you enjoy it. Hard candy is different, right? If you bite down on it, you'll probably hurt yourself. You'll do damage to your teeth. The only way to get it into your system is to leave it there for a while, to, to ruminate on it. And so we're doing that with some of the hard sayings of Jesus. And in the passage that, uh, that was just read for us, that Christina read from Mark chapter 10, we actually smuggled in two hard sayings. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on one of them. We're going to spend most of our time on the first. But, but very quickly, there are two common notions that Jesus confronts here in Matthew or in Mark chapter 10. The first is the ideas that we have about riches. I mean, Jesus kind of flips those on their head. And the second is the ideas that we carry about moral goodness. Again, a concept that gets completely turned upside down. And we meet in this episode of Mark's Gospel a character who is described as a rich, young ruler. This is a young man who is wealthy. He's wealthy both in terms of material resources, he's got lots of money, but he's also morally wealthy. He's described as being somebody with decent moral character. This is an upright man. And at the end of the story, we see him go away dejected. Jesus sends him away. And he says, and this is the verse that gives us the curious title of the message, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's verse 25. So that's the first principle. The second principle, if we were to tease it out, and we'll do this very briefly at the end, but the second principle is there in verse 18 where Jesus says to the young man, good, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So there you have Jesus, one of the hard sayings, saying that your understanding both of riches and of goodness, that it's, that it's insufficient, that sometimes it's just flat out wrong. And he takes those ideas, which were very common in Jesus' day and probably equally common in our day, and he inverts them completely. And those two principles that Jesus offers, those inverted upside-down worldview, 
those things are like dynamite. I mean, when you grab hold of them, it requires that you unlearn some stuff that most of us spend our whole lifetime learning. But they're not just dynamite because of that, because they, they set off explosions in our life. They're, they're dynamite because if you obey them, you will find that there is power. Dynamos means power. There, there are power that, that gets unleashed in your life. And after all, as a church, that's what we're about. I mean, if you're on our website, if you're on any of our social media channels, you can't miss it. Mississauga City Baptist Church, unleashing the power of Jesus in people's lives. Because we, we just believe that if you get hold of that, it's spiritual dynamite. So that's where we're headed this morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to have them open or your devices, have them open, Mark chapter 10. The first principle Jesus is going to talk about has to do with the great, the great danger of spiritual wealth. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone to enter the kingdom of God. And if you've been around the church for any length of time and you've heard that passage before, you've probably heard some interesting explanations about what Jesus possibly meant. Maybe you've heard a, a pastor or a teacher say that, that the eye of the needle was the name for a particular doorway, a, a doorway through which you could uh, access the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a walled city, and there were a number of gates, and one of the smallest gates was called the eye of the needle. And so easier for a camel, which would have to duck down low, to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. So not impossible, but really hard. You ever tried to get a camel to duck? <laughs> uh, I've also heard people say that, you know, the Greek word for camel is, you're not going to believe this, camelos. Finally, a Greek word that makes sense, right? The Greek word for camel is camelos. Uh, but also the Greek word for, for rope is camelos. A difference of one little vowel. And often the vowels were not written. If you were to look at, at a Greek Bible, an ancient Greek Bible, you'd find often they write just the consonants. And so it would be easy for a scribe who were reading that to mistake camolos and camilos uh, and, and, and sort of change the image. Easier for a piece of rope to thread itself through the eye of a needle than for a camel. But whatever you do to make sense of this saying, the difficulty is not primarily in trying to understand the image. Most of the time we're trying to get out from under the weight of it. Because we kind of get that there's something bizarre going on, that there's meant to be something that's weighty to this. That's why the disciples were so completely astonished. Jesus gave them an example that sounded impossible. Whether it's threading a needle with a large rope or whether it's a massive animal trying to duck low to get through a gate or whatever the image is. The idea is that this is impossible. Jesus is telling them that the more money you have, the more spiritual risk there is for you. And that cut right against the grain of everything that they believed spiritually about wealth. In Judaism at the time, wealth 
was a clear indication of God's favor. If you are prospering financially, it's because God has blessed you. He's blessed you because he approves of you. He approves of your character, your family, your conduct. And if you weren't prospering financially, in fact, if you were languishing in financial distress or poverty, that suffering is made worse by the understanding that somehow you deserved it. You must have done something that landed you in that situation. Or if not you, your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents because the suffering of an individual was, in their understanding, visited upon four generations of their progeny. You see that in the story of Job, don't you? Those of you who have ever encountered the story of Job in the Old Testament, here's a very, very wealthy man who lives under what was assumed to be the blessing of God. And through a series of catastrophes, he loses everything, all his wealth, all his family, his health, And into the story step three of his friends, supposedly, counselors. God save us from bad counselors. And these were bad counselors, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. So if ever you're looking for a counseling referral and you get referred to the the practice of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, run away. They're trying to console him, and they do a lousy job. They say, Job, you've lost all your money. You've lost everything. Here comes the counseling. He must have done something really awful. You must have done something awful to deserve this. Because there was this understanding, very common understanding, that if you're doing well financially, God approves of the way that you're living. And if you're not doing well, it means God must not like you. You must have done something wrong. You must have done something bad. Some of you will know the rest of the story of Job. You know that the real reason that Job loses everything has nothing to do with him, but a lot of external forces in the world. The world is a broken place. The world is dangerous. The world is unpredictable. And if you know the story of Job, you know that he did nothing himself to cause this. Now, of course, you can, you can get yourself into poverty through sinful behavior. We know that. Uh, You can get to poverty through gambling, through just poor choices, through laziness. But that's not the only reason. The biblical understanding of wealth and poverty is far more sophisticated. It's, It's much more nuanced than that. Wealth can come and wealth can go because of a lot of factors that are completely outside of your control. But the one thing the Bible is constant about is this that wealth can be spiritually dangerous. In fact, that wealth is more spiritually dangerous than poverty. To be clear, there's dangers to poverty as well. Uh, But I think we're much more willing to accept that there are dangers to poverty than we are dangers to wealth because it doesn't apply to us for the most part. And we're just trying to get out from under the weight of it. But here you have Jesus saying wealth has tremendous spiritual dangers attached to it. Let's look at how he gets the point across. The young man comes to him, seems to be saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he expects that Jesus, a good teacher, is going to talk to him about theology, the things you have to believe, or morality, the way you have to behave. And so he goes on, he says, teacher, I'm a good man. 
And, and the Bible gives us no reason to doubt his claim. He was exquisitely moral, or so it seems. I'm a good man. I honor God. I obey the commandments. I'm morally decent. I'm seeking God, and yet it feels like there's something missing. What must I do to inherit eternal life? By the way, that's always true of somebody who spends their life just trying to be good enough. They're always plagued with that feeling that there's something missing. I've I've missed something. There's something left out. I'm just not sure. So he's not sure. People like him are never sure. I've tried my best, but I'm not sure. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he's expecting a theological answer. Ah, young man, well, what you need to do is better understand this theological principle. So take this book, read chapter 8, and we'll get back together a week from now in my office. Or, Or maybe he thought that Jesus was going to talk to him about good deeds. Well, here's one behavior you need to work on. You need to fix this one up. And Jesus does neither. Instead, he talks to him about money. Why? And why does Jesus talk to him about money? Because he's a wonderful counselor. God give you wonderful counselors in your life. And Jesus always had a way of seeing past the surface of seeing the unvarnished truth about you. That's what wonderful, gifted counselors and friends can do. And rather than talking abstractly about theological principles, he makes it personal. And so he talks to this young man about one of the most personal things in his life. He talks about his money. He says, this one thing you lack. Give away everything that you own. Sell it to the poor. And then follow me. (laughs) What's Jesus getting at here? Uh, Again, there is no place in the Bible where we are commanded to go into voluntary poverty. To give away everything. So Jesus is not quoting scripture. He doesn't say, as it says in the law... Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. It doesn't say that anywhere. So what's Jesus doing? He's after this man because it's his attitude towards wealth that has become the controlling, or if you'd like to use a really old-fashioned word, the besetting, the besetting idol of his life. The disciples ask the question everybody else is thinking, what's going on here? And and Jesus says, how hard it is for them who trust in true riches, or who trust in riches to inherit eternal life. How hard it is for them who trust in riches to inherit eternal life. Again, you read this story, and you read it alongside lots of other encounters that Jesus has with wealthy people. And you come to see that Jesus' problem is not with money so much. When he talks to Zacchaeus, he tells him to give away some of his money, but not all. Pay off your debts, is what he says to Zacchaeus. When he talks to Nicodemus, also a very wealthy man, the subject of money never comes up at all. That's the longest conversation recorded in the Bible between Jesus and another human being. So it's not money as such. But in this particular case, as a gifted counselor, he's pointed to something going on internally in this man's life. 
It has to do with attitude. Money itself, not a bad thing. We've said that before. But when it consumes you, when it defines you, when it drives you, it becomes something else. And here Jesus is saying, listen, we need to get past this or you and I are not going to be able to do business. It shouldn't be a surprise for us, after all, that money is the thing Jesus talks about. It's still what we talk about, right? Money and sex. Sex and, and money. All the time. I mean, the church is notorious for it. That's all you ever want to talk about. Sex and money. There's a marriage breakup. Which was it? Was it money or sex? What did you in? What is it about sex and money? Well, they both weave their way all the way back to the beginning of the story. They're right there at the beginning. Genesis chapter 2. When God is making the world and he makes human beings, he does two things. First is he makes human beings. He makes an Adam, he makes an Eve, and he gives them to each other. He says, it's not good for you to be alone. I want you to be together, one flesh. That's sex. And then to Adam and Eve, he gives the world. He says, I give you dominion over it. Take it, cultivate it. It's there for your care and keeping, for your enjoyment. That's money. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But the two things God gives at the very beginning, he gives them each other, sex. He gives them the world. That's money. Why is that money? Because you know what money really is. Money is power over the created world. The more money you have, the more of the world you can control. And money is a matter of control. When Adam and Eve were first put on earth, God shared responsibility with them. He gave them control. Money is something that has to be taken care of. Uh, Money allows you to buy things. The more things you bring into your life, the more things you have to take care of. It's why it gives such dignity and such satisfaction. It gives us dignity and satisfaction because it gives us things to care for. These are our responsibility, and we were kind of built for that. I mean, money alone, just a piece of paper or a number that you look at on the screen, uh, that's nothing. What money really is, is the power to exert control. And we were given stewardly, co-creator control over the earth as part of our legacy. We were built for that. And why do you think prison is so traumatic? It's so dehumanizing because you're stripped away of everything that you can control. It's just something about money, sex and money, intrinsic to our humanity. And that's probably the reason why under the influence of evil, sin, uh, sex and money are so powerfully misused. I mean, there's lots of things in the world and in human life that have been tainted by sin, but money and sex just seem to be more susceptible to it than anything else, and they very quickly and very easily become idols. The word idol or idolatry is probably less familiar to those of us who grew up in the West than to those who grew up in the East. Because you were surrounded by idols. When we were taken on a tour of, um, of some of the temples in India, Augie, you'll remember this, 
Uh, the person who was hosting us said that people's desire was to look into the face of an idol. And what is it they hope to gain by doing that? They want power. They want power. Under the influence of sin, idolatry is the desire to place something else in the center of our lives from which we derive our power. And what it really does, idolatry, is makes us step back from our true identity in Christ and step back from God's real authority over our lives. And we think, you know, money, sex, if I have those things, then my life will be worthwhile. I'll put them in the center of my life. I'll make those things my life's goal. So here's the key idea. Money should be part of our dignity. Money should be our dignity. But under the influence of sin, it actually becomes our definition. What's the difference? The difference is a matter of degree. Money is a fine thing. Money can give us a sense of dignity. We're able to own things, care for things, provide for things. The Bible says, though, that under the influence of sin, that wonderful dignity can turn into a form of idolatry. Money becomes a god. How do you know? How do you know when that's happening? In this man's life, I mean, Jesus just spots it. He goes right to the center and he names it. Money is the idol. It's the controlling thing in your life. Unless we break its grip on you, we're not going to be able to deal together. But what about for you and me? How, how do we identify when it's become or when it's becoming a controlling idol, when it's been tainted? What are the signs of idolatry in money? Well, here's one. You find yourself envying people who have more. You find yourself consumed with thoughts as you drive through fancy neighborhoods or look at beautiful cars with not only what it would be like to have that, but, but actually a little bit of resentment because they do and you don't. Or, and maybe this is more telling, Money is becoming idolatrous when you find yourself regularly and constantly worried about it. Now, I know there are seasons in life when you need to worry about money. But if you find that that is the base note of your whole life, whether you have it or whether you don't, whether you have lots of it or very little of it, then that's a sign that it's probably become a problem. Another sign that that it's become an idol in your life, it's taken control, is if you've identified in yourself a clear bias in making relationships with people based on how much money they have. Think about your circle of friends and think about how they reflect the, the multi-stratified levels of society and, and see whether you've confined yourself only to one strata. People have a tendency to gravitate to extremes in the way that they handle money and the way that's reflected in their relationships. Uh, here's, here's a couple of extremes, and we've talked about these before, but there are great spenders. Hands up if you're a great spender. Okay, yeah. And there are great misers. I mean, they never spend. Hands up if you're a great miser. Okay, uh, you can be the treasurer. Yeah. Uh, 
at both extremes, great spender, great miser, you find people for whom money has become too important. The same, the same principle is at stake. It's become a controlling factor in your life. And I'll give you a test. It's a biblical test. It's the test of generosity. See, the Bible is emphatic about the importance of supporting those who are in need, of supporting the work of God's church, of providing for the poor. If you can't afford to be generous, either because you've spent too much on your own lifestyle or because you are too tight with your money, then it's become a controlling idol in your life. It has more power over you than it should. Does that make sense? It happens at either extremes. And I'll tell you something that's counterintuitive, but it's borne out in all the statistics, and you can look them up. The less money people have, the more generous they are. It doesn't make any sense, but if you've ever traveled in the developing world, you will encounter that. Remarkable generosity from people who have nothing. You'd expect the opposite. But again, money works in deceptive, idolatrous ways. You can look up these statistics. People who live in the lowest income brackets of our society, Canada, have a tendency to give away 4 to 5% of their income to charity. People who live in the higher income brackets, over $150,000 a year, give away on average less than 1%. That's not a new thing. That's just the way it's always been. If money under the influence of sin has become too important to you, it's fraught with spiritual dangers. And it's possible that it's actually become a controlling idol in your life. It's the thing you look to to make yourself feel worthwhile. It's the thing that you depend on to make it feel like you've succeeded, that you count. It's the thing that you trust the most. And by the way, it happens whether you're rich or poor or middle class. Jesus comes into the life of this rich young man and he challenges him. He asks him to do two things to see if they can dislodge the power of this idol in his life. The first thing he says is, give away your money. But that's not all that he says. He says a second thing. He says, give away your money and follow me. Which is his way of saying, I want you to see that if you have me, you have what you need the most. Again, the problem's not money. It could be anything that's lodged itself into that central place in the young man's life. In his case, it was money. And Jesus is just trying to Snip the umbilical cord, if you'd like. That psychological, emotional, spiritual umbilical cord between this young man and his money. He's trying, to, he's trying to cut the cord. This is not the center of your life anymore. And he says the way to do that, if you're struggling, is to become radically generous. He doesn't just say, give away your money. He says, give it to the poor. Because there's nothing that will change your perspective on wealth more than being truly involved in the lives of people with great needs. And so he says, I want you to be involved with the poor. You've lost your perspective. I want you to learn not just to be because it's a responsibility, but to love being radically generous. We're going to cut the cord. And unless you're willing to do that, I'm going to have a hard time working in your life. What well, hasn't changed in 2,000 years, that conversation Jesus is still having it with people. And as 
as a church, we're still wrestling with how to have that conversation. But I'll tell you one of the things that's come out of our wrestling, and we're excited about this. Starting next month, we're going to be launching the MCBC Food Bank in conjunction with the Scott Mission. Uh, over the past 16 months, we've learned just how vulnerable not only people are because of food insecurity, but how vulnerable the whole system is. And we just want to be able to make sure that we're doing everything that we can to support people in doing that. And I've spoken to lots of people around the edges who've said, hey, the minute you open up the doors, let me know. I'm all in. And so over the next few weeks, you're going to hear little teasers, little opportunities. It's coming, it's coming. We're hoping to get it out the door in September. Um, but can I say this? Um, that's not just an opportunity. In fact, it's not even primarily an opportunity to serve the poor because they need it. The church needs the poor more than the poor need the church. It's the way that we cut the cord. Again, Jesus' disciples were astonished when Jesus did this. But in a sense, he looks at all of them and says, I can't, I can't really work with you unless you can see the spiritual danger of riches, unless you're willing to admit the impact that money has in your life, the way its tentacles are spread all through you, unless you can learn to love the life of generosity, unless you're willing to get involved with people who have real need. Well, the MCBC Food Bank is just one little opportunity, but we hope it's one that really strikes a chord and, and really lights a fire in your lives. Let's switch gears just for five minutes. Have you got five more minutes in you? Nod if you have five more minutes, and it's not the sleepy nod. <laughs> okay. Uh, you remember he said Jesus is going to confront two things. The second thing he's, he's teaching about has to do with moral goodness. And we're not going to spend nearly as much time on this, but remember we said that this young man, he's not just materially wealthy, he's morally wealthy. Uh, the young man comes in and he says, I've kept all the commandments. I mean, I've obeyed all this since I was little. I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't steal, I respect people. I, I treat them all in these ways. And he gives his resume. And it's, it's a good one. But Jesus... Jesus' response defies our understanding of who God deals with. And in our day, I think what we believe, we've, we've sort of situated it this way. That what you may believe about God is a whole lot less important than the good life that you lead. I mean, haven't you heard that before? For example, somebody starts to explain the Christian gospel, and it won't be long before another person in the room raises the objection, say, hey, wait a minute, are you saying that a good Buddhist, for example, is lost if they don't come to believe in Jesus? Notice the way the question gets asked every time. Because they're not asking, you know, what happens in the case of a bad Buddhist? A serial killer Buddhist? Never. Why? Because what they're really asking is, isn't it the good deeds that are most important after all? Not what you believe. 
And this is the idea that Jesus is really confronting. There's a perfectly good person standing in front of him, where he thinks he is, and he's turned away. Why? Morality and goodness are not enough. Being morally rich can be just as spiritually dangerous as being materially rich. In fact, in some ways, for those who are in the church, those who think themselves morally impeccable are in worse danger than those who think themselves materially invulnerable. Here's what Jesus does. We, we expect that Jesus is going to get involved in somebody's life and just add in some extra stuff. I'm already a good person. I'll just sprinkle in Jesus on the top and that'll put me over the edge. Christianity is never a matter of addition. Christianity is an explosive. Christianity wants to come into the life of a person and upend your world. It gives you a new way of seeing God, a new way of seeing yourself, a new way of seeing the world. What must I do? The young man asks, what must I do? Jesus says, you think you're obedient? You you say you've obeyed all the commandments. You know the big ones, the Ten Commandments. Do you know the two big ones? All the Ten Commandments get summed up in these. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he nods and we nod. We know that one. He says, fine, I'll give you an example then. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That sums up the Great Commandments. Again, not about money, but a false sense of security in our own goodness. Here's a man who, who's convinced he's kept all of it. No one is more important to him than God. Nothing is more absorbing, more engrossing, more exciting. Everything is trivial by comparison. And no one is more important to him than the people that God has called him to love, his neighbors. So getting rid of your money, that shouldn't be hard. And loving your neighbor by sharing what you have, that would be a perfect way of doing it. The young man absolutely can't do it. He's stuck. So what's Jesus getting at? It's not about money. It's not about morality. Morality and goodness are not enough. Maybe what Jesus is really suggesting to this young man is I have to be your treasure. I need to be your goodness. I need to be your righteousness. I need to be your wealth. And if it can't be that, then let's be honest, I'm going to have a hard time working in your life. See, Jesus doesn't add a thing. He's not there to add a little bit here and a little bit there. He completely upends our world. Emotional, psychological, religious. Why does he do it? So that he can rebuild something new from the ground up. The gospel never comes in just wanting to add a little bit. It starts all over. That's the reason in that most famous conversation anywhere in the Bible. That's the reason when Nicodemus says, hey, good teacher, I got a few theological questions for you. Jesus has nothing of it. What does he say? You must be born again. We're going to start all over. You make me your Lord and Savior. It's the only way. Morality, goodness, wealth, that's, that's not enough. We're going to start fresh. Has that ever happened for you? I mean, has 
Has Jesus ever dealt with you that way? Have you ever dealt with him? You've ever been confronted by Jesus who looks at you and says, in the center of your life, you're in bondage. You are enslaved by things that define your identity. And I want to blow that up and start fresh. I want to give you me. Your true identity in Christ, right in the center of your life. Your God-given inheritance. You are a son, you are a daughter of your heavenly Father. And without that, you're lost. Have you ever been confronted by that Jesus? Have you ever been sent away, upset, angry? Maybe some of you are feeling a little bit of that right now. He's being unreasonable. Or have you left with your life turned inside out and filled with joy? Because because really, I think those are the alternatives. If you've ever really met him, He's either going to send you away sorrowful or turned inside out and filled with joy. The one thing that's not really possible is just indifference. Jesus hasn't left that open for us. And can I say, and we'll close with this, if any of you are really wrestling with him right now, if he's been showing you the idols of your life, if you're really wrestling with him, maybe you're a little bit upset by him. I want to say there's a lot more hope for you right now than for those who simply think, well, Jesus, he's a fine man and a good teacher, and I'll do my best to obey his teaching. You see, unless you've been offended by him, or you've had your whole life completely turned inside out and restarted through him. Unless that's happened, you haven't really met him. So let's see if we can meet him right now. Will you join me as we pray? Got into the sacredness of this place into the uncomfortable quiet of this moment, we invite you. We invite you, Jesus, to confront us in, in the way that you have always confronted your people. With our very best in mind, but with the willingness to be absolutely disruptive so that something new can be born in us. We pray for the courage to receive and apply your word. We pray for the strength to confront the idols in our own life. And we pray for that that bubbling sense of anticipation that something new can be born in us. New wine that comes bursting forth from the old wineskin of our lives. God, let it come. We want to be a a people of generosity, a people who are radically invested in the lives of this city and its needs. Most of all, a people who place their greatest hope and their greatest treasure in the name of Jesus. For in Jesus' name we pray.